0: Fear and Other Feelings, Episode Three. Welcome if you're new. Welcome back if you're not. Um, yeah, I don't think uh, I don't think I need more of an intro than that. Um, yeah, here we go. Uh, it's it's finally cold in New York City, uh, or at least hopefully it finally is. I feel like the weather has been pretty temperamental the last couple weeks. I like it when we get into like the 40s and 30s, that feeling when you get like a cold rush of wind to the face. I like that feeling. It kind of feels like nature telling me, you're alive, man. Did you forget? Which I don't really get as much when it's warmer. I like wearing layers. I like wearing pants more than shorts. I like boots. I'm pretty sure that has to do with feeling more comfortable when people can't see my body as much. I feel fat all the, t- all the time, and cold weather gives me an excuse to quite literally cover up that insecurity. It's a layer of mental peace that isn't there when it's like 80 degrees instead of 40. I think this is one of those foundational insecurities that just needs to be worked through, like why do I care how my body looks to strangers if I know that it doesn't affect how the people I care about see me? I think the instinctual answer to that is vanity as much as i try to work towards a concept of self worth coming from within for better or worse uh there's still that piece that's based on how do i look how fit am i how far away am i from my vision of the ideal man the ideal partner as far as ideal partner goes i think that specific insecurity comes from the occasional time that i think to myself Well, if you were a girl who was in shape and had her shit together, would you be attracted to you? Would you feel like, eh, he's cool enough, but it would be cooler if he did some deadlifts and stopped eating burgers? I I think turning it around on yourself like that is the only way to attempt to be objective. Looking back on it, everyone I've ever been physically attracted to was like in better shape than me, but that didn't stop some of those people from being attracted back to me. So I guess the evidence would suggest that my physical shape is not, first, is not the first point of attraction about me for people. But I guess the discomfort about it lingers because I can't exactly tell how attracted I would be to me if I stepped outside myself. I've been in states of mind where this body insecurity lessened quite a bit, but I don't remember ever feeling it fully dissipate. I will say, though, that it has gotten better over time and continues to. I think it was probably at its worst when I was, like, 15. I remember this one time in ninth grade gym class when we were doing this thing where everyone in class had to jump onto this rope and swing over, like, a few feet and jump off and land on this mat. And this mat was, like, really small. And the, like, exercise basically wasn't over until the whole class was, like, standing on the mat together, like, all cramped next to each other. And the gym teacher kept talking about how it was like a teamwork thing. And I kept thinking to myself, fuck you, man. Why you got to define me by my worst attribute to all these people? Why can't you let me keep being the quiet kid in the corner who just wants to nerd out with his couple of nerdy friends? I remember everyone got on the rope, swung over to the mat, and I was the last one who had to go. At the time, this was way worse than like any bad dream I'd probably had. It compounded a few fears together. The first was not appearing to be in good shape. The second was not actually being in good shape. And the third is being watched by the people who made me the most insecure and failing in front of them. And not only that, but everyone was depending on me to finish this shit so class could be over and they could all get off this tiny mat and stop being squished together. I remember feeling all hot in the face and worrying about being seen by all these girls who I thought already laughed at me in private before ever seeing me do anything embarrassing. I don't think, uh, I don't remember how many tries it took me, but it was definitely more than two. I think it might've been three or four. I couldn't even get up onto the rope and hang there for long enough for like a couple of my attempts, which honestly was like pretty heartbreaking. It would have been so much better if I knew how to go a tiny bit zen like I occasionally can these days and just like attack the rope for a couple of seconds and be done before I had enough time to be like conscious about it and overthink. But this was like 10 years ago and that would be asking a lot of that kid at that time. I was years away from thinking about internal versus external validation for the first time. But sure enough, with a numb face and uh, a thumping chest and maybe a little bit of help from someone, I don't exactly remember. I finally swung over to the tiny piece of the mat that was like empty for me. And fuck, was that a relief. I was probably pissed that I had to do it my my 10 year old memory is that I was thinking like, what the hell, man? Why could not you just be like every other gym teacher and let us bullshit for like a half hour? Why do you need to make the one chill class the most difficult thing I had to do all year? So yeah, I, I'm not sure if the body insecurity thing is just a factor of like, unresolved emotions from a long time ago probably a little bit um so yeah that was uh was one of the things i was thinking about something else i've been thinking about i might go off on a bit of a disjointed rant here but uh yeah um i've been thinking about sunk cost in a few different ways like uh the first way is in terms of like degree, like um, academic degrees and like career stuff. The second way is like romantic relationships. The third is like um, the reputation of institutions and like having, like as an individual, having your reputation tied to an institution. Um, so yeah, let me start with um, let me start with that first part. I think I think the feeling of being invested in something. And feeling pressure to stick with it, even when it stops being the thing that you wanted, is like at the center of a lot of bullshit that's been happening recently. I don't hear people talk about it in those specific terms that much. I think um, Eric Weinstein of the uh, the Portal podcast, which is one of my favorites, uh, is the main person I can think of who, who, does, uh, who does talk about that. He's always talking about how institutions are failing us because their bad incentive structures are finally catching up with them like they never have in the past. Um, Most of the other conversation I see about institutions is basically just like banks suck, colleges suck, insurance sucks, our governor sucks, police suck, our president sucks, which I feel like is basically saying my broken leg sucks. Well, yeah, of course it does. But why are we focusing on the symptom instead of the cause? Like, Wasn't it hitting your leg on the side of the pool after trying to to dive off the roof? Isn't that what sucked more than like your broken leg? Uh, I can't really talk details since I'm just a dude trying to absorb whatever scraps I can from listening to like smart people try to figure it out. But I think it's fair to say, for example, that like what makes, you know, quote unquote college suck when people say something like that is... High tuition colleges have too much time and reputation invested in the idea that college is this like upward step for anyone who chooses to invest in it. They've invested and built public capital in the idea for literally hundreds of years now. And we're living through the first generation where that concept is like starting to not be true more and more with each passing day. That is what I mean when I say sunk cost. They created a truth, that truth became stronger and stronger as it kept being true. That truth was totally stable earlier in my lifetime, which is why I remember as a little kid hearing from all the adults around me that college is this great thing that gets you ahead and you're going to do it and it'll be great. Now, I would argue that the main reason I personally didn't get much academic or career based value from college is because I didn't take it seriously and went into it completely aimless, basically, which is why I ended up with a degree that I would never have expected to get just a couple of years before I got it. I think I learned a good amount outside the classroom, but regardless, I think this is pretty common with people like me who mainly went to college because they didn't have to pay for it and were told to go. But even if we put that aside and we think only about the people who do take it seriously, the reason that college is making less and less sense is that so many of the offered degrees, once again, in high tuition college, not in community college, which is probably a decent value most of the time. um, High tuition college basically requires you to spend a huge chunk of your most energetic and product, productive years, paying the cost back. Uh, I have a degree in journalism. I didn't pay state tuition, but I think that most people from my school with that degree did. So let's take that. If you don't pay for dorming, four years at Rutgers, Rutgers University is about $62,000. And if you do dorm, you should add like another 15000 to that. It's scary to imagine how long it would take the average journalist starting out to put that money aside and then also put aside whatever extra would be the interest on that student loan. 20 or 30 or certainly 40 years ago, this years if not decades long climb out of a student loan was not common at all. If it was, it wouldn't have been sold to us as a dream by the last few generations because it wouldn't have worked for them either. The reason I think that these schools are doubling down basically is that their survival is based on the established reputation as a positive stepping stone for people. So they gotta keep selling that idea like nothing has changed, as if the value proposition of college is the same as, it, same as it was once upon a time. Outside of the medical field and certain types of engineering, selling this idea is selling a bluff that they hope it doesn't get called. Sunk cost, once again. This institution has invested too far in one direction, in one idea. That has created this poisonous incentive to try to preserve their old image instead of trying to figure out how to adjust to the times to be a better service to their customers. Trying to adapt would probably mean accepting that a lot of the spending and staff and expensive facilities they're used to should be cut out. Now, just about no one wants to lose a job they've been proud to have for years and years. So those people, tenured professors and whoever, resist and double down on selling the idea of their continuing value and the machine rolls on. The sunk cost The heavy investment made in the past makes them feel like it would all have been for nothing if they can't keep it going, even as the wheels start to fall off. When I look at online journalism courses that aren't even $1,000, I'm like, damn, this is the same thing I did, if not a little better. And I think that's the case now with a ton of degrees. Thanks to the internet and smart people being able to make stuff and just put it up for anyone to access, you don't need to pay with your future to buy something in the present the way that college asks you to. I think there's going to be a tipping point when too many people realize that they're being sold a fake promise and the institution will crumble or be forced to change if it wants to survive another reason i think that school is starting to make less sense is because at least here in america there's things taught in school that time is disproving i remember when columbus day was something we celebrated in school every year And now it's been, you know, revealed to be this terrible thing that we should do away with and replace with something that feels more historically accurate, like indigenous people's day, which is a new thing that many of us learned only after leaving school. Uh, I didn't hear about Malcolm X once in school the way that we heard about Martin Luther King a hundred times. And I think that's because of the institution of American public school has invested too heavily in the idea of success being tied to politeness and tidiness and preserving that collective myth that requires pretending that important figures like malcolm x should be ignored because he achieved what many would call success through aggression and violence we were told about the moon landing and about how america was the first to reach that goal and how and it was emphasized how russia tried to beat us but america was just too great to be defeated The part of the story that was conveniently left out is how NASA had to enlist the help of Werner von Braun, who was a scientist for the Nazis before America hired him. Anything to preserve the idea that you can achieve greatness without ever getting your hands dirty. Same thing with Columbus. Same thing with drug education. We're taught that weed will lead you to a crack addiction and years in prison. I remember sitting there in fifth grade during D.A.R.E., and accepting these horrible images that were fed to me. Kids are impressionable, and they'll buy into almost anything if you catch them early enough. That's the basis for any type of national identity, isn't it? Whatever you can get kids to buy into early on. India doesn't work the way that it does if kids don't believe in gods, and early marriage, and planning to take care of your old parents. America doesn't work the way it does if people aren't given access to live off of money that they don't have. So many young Americans wouldn't have credit card debt if the car- if the card companies didn't show up on college campus the first week and sell them snake oil. Russia doesn't work the way that it does unless kids are taught that the state media and dictator aren't things to question. A different kind of sunk cost is on a more personal social level. I'm kind of scared to like just say that I agree with this idea, but that's the point of this show, so I got to Try and hope you guys see that i'm just trying to make sense of what's in front of me a few months ago i saw how people who were heavily invested in black lives matter and social justice more generally people who also believed in the danger of covid and believed in taking precautions people who sneered and made fun of uh these super spreader parties in florida and wherever these same people acted rather hypocritically in my opinion by encouraging and participating in large protests. How can you talk shit about people who get together in large groups if we're gonna do the same thing ourselves? Obviously, Black Lives Matter protests are a better cause than partying, but as far as I'm concerned, it stretches believability to say that you're really serious about COVID if you're immediately willing to decide that doing the one thing that caused it is a worthwhile risk. I'm viewing this as sunk cost in terms of how people have chosen to identify themselves and how that choice about identity impacts their self-worth and self-image. Since I don't identify or feel tied to the identity of an activist, I didn't have to decide how to choose between maintaining my activist identity and my fear of COVID. I think a lot of people decided that the preservation of their social image or of their internal personal image even weighed more than their fear of getting or spreading COVID. The first place I go when I think about how that happened is the very broad idea of the collective myth there's a good case to be made that most of what we think as society is held up on collective myths not a single person who started the ford motor company still works there so why do we act like 2020 ford is the same company as 1920 ford because that's a story we can all believe in to make it easier for each other same deal with money cash isn't cash is cash because everyone decided a long time ago that that's what we agree on as having material value if we all decided that water was the new currency, then cash would just suddenly be paper and we stopped fighting over it. The American flag only has meaning because enough people decided together that it did. We only stop at red lights because we agree to follow the collective myth that a red light means you should stop and on and on. So through that lens, I saw the protests during COVID as something that was sold as sensible and necessary because of the power of collective myths. And of course, because of the anger of enough young people uh, creating a new temporary truth That social justice aims were a higher priority than public health aims. Enough people had invested heavily in that direction and saw that enough people around them felt the same way. I think that support from the new collective myth made people feel validated to the point that they didn't feel like it was worth asking themselves if virus exposure was something to worry about. This kind of thing scares me. How base level truths and concerns can suddenly change without much consideration. If anyone wants to make the case for me about how that's like not hypocritical or how that is not a very extreme and sudden shift in priorities, uh, I'd be happy to hear that. Um, but I sort of haven't heard it yet. So yeah. Uh, and that brings me to sunk cost in romantic relationships. I don't know if it's Hollywood or, you know, like Hollywood by extension of capitalism and consumerism and billboards. But something at some point started planting this idea in our heads that romantic relationships and marriage and commitment are these sort of like your first chance is the more important games where you better not lose the one because why the hell would there be more than one person in the world who would be compatible with you? I guess this is like another collective myth that's been bought into. Over the years, I've had a lot of conversations with people in romantic relationships who are mostly struggling with the question of how do I change things back to the way they used to be? This seems to be the most difficult type of sunk cost for people to view objectively. When you've gone down a road with someone for years and you have this idea that they're going to be your main person forever, but then something significant changes and one day, you finally notice that what you were happy with before has turned into something else, something new, something that you don't want people in this situation appear to feel really stuck stuck between the time and energy they've already put in and their wish for something that actually met their needs which might mean parting ways with all that time and energy they spent i've never been in that situation so i can only speculate about how stuck it must make people feel but even from just watching someone going through it and talking to them about it even secondhand, it seems pretty devastating Isn't sunk cost the main reason that people will find themselves desperately climbing uphill for years to restore something that seems to be gone? Or does that climb seem like an easier path to fulfillment than cutting your losses and trying to meet someone new? I can't tell. If someone tried to live their life with the basic premise of, I should invest in relationships that get me closer to feeling more fulfilled and connected and let go of the ones that don't, then the logical step after trying and failing a few times to rewind your relationship to a previous stage would be to move on and start over with someone who you don't have any baggage with. That's super, that, that's way, way more easier said than done based on what I see. Maybe it's that programmed Hollywood concept of love that we see, that you should fight for something even after it's been shitty for a long time, that there's only one person for each of us, that something isn't worthwhile if it's easy. But I've seen something else too, which is people holding on to fraught relationships because the alternative is being alone with your own brain and your own thoughts. And for some people, that seems to be way scarier than constantly fighting with someone, even if it's for years. That makes me sad as someone who is probably too comfortable getting lost in my thoughts. If someone in that situation was never shown therapy or meditation, it might seem like a shitty relationship is the closest thing to fulfillment or connection and that sucks that being the host for what slowly became a parasite is all you can have i get anxious about how fast time moves which funnily enough is advice that i got last week when i was in line voting but i guess i'm paying a little more attention to it lately instead of ignoring it the way i've gotten used to it's basically one thing pretty much all the time there's a friend or two or a relative or two who I haven't talked to as recently as I should have. And then when that list piles up, I get anxious about it and then ignore the whole thing and try to ignore the anxiety. For whatever reason, even though I know I'll have a good time talking to all those people, it seems like the idea of I should really spend 10 hours in the next day or two catching up with everyone is intimidating. And then yeah, I pretend all of it's gone and go do whatever I felt like doing instead i don't like that about myself um not that anyone would like that about themselves but i'm just trying to say the uncomfortable truths so i can hopefully stop letting them fuck with me so much um i think the reason it feels like annoying as opposed to just like a clear flaw is because i already feel like i'm spending a decent amount of time on relationships in general but I guess that's just the lazy brain trying to rationalize its existence. And really, I probably just gotta accept that discipline is the only way, or maybe the answer is to talk to all the same people, but more often for less time. I've never really tried that version. Maybe the short version is that I have, com- I have commitment issues about time. I can't think of a better explanation for something like that than a lack of discipline and a practice. I think an argument could be made that it's about how I, feel, how I feel just kind of behind in general and get embarrassed sometimes when I try to answer the question um, when someone asks like, so what have you been up to? Because I hoped the answer would be better by now. Uh, I feel like I don't sugarcoat it much so I can at least tell myself that I'm not lying to anyone. But that doesn't really fix the problem, does it? Lazy brain strikes again, that evil thing. It makes me like alone time too much because if you're just doing something on your own without anyone else around, the only expectations you need to think about are your own. I was gonna say the only expectations you need to meet are your own, but it's much easier to ignore your expectations of yourself than those of others, especially if it's people you care about. I've seen that become a dangerous game. I've seen people who only think about other people's expectations and completely suppress their own, and suddenly they're not their own person at all anymore, they only exist to satisfy other people, and get used to feeling hollow inside and lose any sense of self or autonomy. Everything's a trade-off, isn't it? We always have to pick between one trade-off or another. I guess seeing the extremes gives me a little relief about myself. Even though it cost me some stress, I'm pretty happy that I get to have a decent sense of self and relationships with people where we care about each other. Maybe I should be considering it a position of privilege. I'm in a situation where I get to choose who I want to depend on and who I don't as far as any friendships go. Not feeling like I had that choice would be pretty difficult to accept. So yeah, if you find yourself choosing between being with your thoughts and a bad relationship, I hope you find a half-decent therapist or pick a meditation app or hopefully both. Um, So yeah, that's kind of different things about sunk cost I was thinking of. Um, And something that I thought was pretty inspiring and thought-provoking, at least, was um, the Netflix original show Sense8 which I recently finished watching. Uh, Apologies to the homie Savannah. Sorry it took so long for me to take your recommendation. Uh, I guess that's another aspect of the lazy brain. I get intimidated by the list of things that people have recommended to me and and I end up putting all of them off for a long time. But anyway, I got around to Sense8 and the first thing I think that's worth saying is that it's a legitimately unique premise, at least for my movie and TV reference points. This is a show about an alternate reality where there's a small group of people who, to make a long story short, can feel each other's feelings and communicate telepathically and help each other even when they're not in the same place. The concept that interested me the most is how if you could feel anyone else's feelings and experience their memories and basically see their life's trauma firsthand, it would be really difficult to antagonize them in like any way. You know that old school saying about how everyone's the hero of their own story everyone's a hero in their own movie this is an imagining of if we could see that in each other which if history is a teacher barely ever happens the eight main characters hit uh you know diversity check boxes we got a girl from india who's a pharmacist and whose parents are pressuring her to get married We have an American trans girl who's a computer hacker and has been rejected by her family, a closeted Mexican actor, a straight-laced white Chicago cop, uh, a Korean girl who's an experienced martial artist whose family also rejects her, a German dude who's made a living breaking into safes and is always having a crisis of conscience, uh, a bus driver in Nairobi who's trying to find money to get his mom HIV medication, Uh, a girl from Iceland who's a DJ with a traumatic childhood. Um, A lot of their individual struggles overlap and they're able to basically like call to each other in moments of trouble and get advice. And a lot of times they can like take over each other's brains and use each other's skills. Like uh, the cop can jump into the DJ's brain and help her interrogate someone or the fighter can jump into the bus driver's brain and help help him fight off some gangsters who are trying to shake him down. The pharmacist can jump into the hacker's brain and help her like dress a wound, stuff like that. It's it's pretty cool. Um, I, I sometimes have daydreams about if we lived in a reality like this one, so many misunderstandings would get cleared up like almost overnight. I'm like, fuck man, I hope something like that Elon Musk head implant thing can one day in the future maybe let us feel each other's feelings. It sure would save me a lot of time and energy trying to explain my word choices to people. I'm always like, hey man, I'm just trying to be objective and tolerate as few illusions as I can. But it's never about the words I say, is it? It's about how you receive them, how you feel about my words that determines what you think about my thoughts and my intentions. But if you could jump into my brain, you might still think I'm wrong about something, but you'd at least be able to see where I started and how I ended up at a certain thought. There seem to be millions, if not tens of millions of people who spend most of the day being outraged about whatever thing it was that Trump said this morning. There's something that keeps these people from asking themselves if they should go do something else, even after a thousand days of the exact same pattern. I think something like that would stop happening if angry Twitter people jumped into Sense8 world and could see Trump's brain from the inside. I think it's been very easy for most of us especially as americans to view and categorize a Vladimir putin or a kim jong-un or a fidel castro as an amoral authoritarian whose only motivation and concern in life is increasing their power and money these people have no interest in pretending to care about human rights or economic equality or a more peaceful future free speech democracy anything like that the inside of trump's brain would look exactly the same as these guys once you see that, hopefully you'd be like, oh, power hoarder, just like any other power hoarder, but has to deal with the American system's rules. They'll side with anyone who helps them keep the power. I'm going to go finally watch The Sopranos now. Like, hopefully that would be like people's reaction in this like in this universe. Uh, and the flip side of that coin would be Trump voters who finally saw that he is like unquestionably a white supremacist amongst like many other things. I would hope that the millions of non-white people who vote for him felt differently after finding out about that. But who knows, maybe the rush of being in a club that's always shouting crazy shit isn't intoxicating enough to overcome caring about racism. And like in the show, it would be an amazing way for people to quickly understand cultural differences. On the show, characters are constantly jumping into different countries and languages and family situations they aren't used to. And it quickly shows them what each other are going through and how it's different on like a cultural level. Uh, if it was like the show, we'd all have like seven other voices in our head sort of, or rather like access to seven other people through the brain. Um, even if some of those seven wouldn't get along with you on paper, being able to jump into your head wouldn't negate even like a giant difference probably. You'd have to be you have to be like a real cold-hearted atheist to have beef with some kind of like scared kid who's a Christian, uh, who, like, you know, had to go to Catholic school and worried for years and years that they would, like, go to hell because, like, that's what they were taught. Seeing shit like that firsthand would get rid of, like, any sneery attitudes, I feel like. Would it finally help humanity agree on something together? Anything? Would Would it push us to prioritize human rights and reduction of suffering since we would, like, be forced to feel way more suffering than we were used to originally. Either way, it would force all of us to confront truths about other people we had been happy to ignore before. And I can't imagine a better way for people to learn about each other. It's a nice dream, hopefully we get close to it someday. So yeah, that's what's been on my mind this week. Right now it's about 2 p.m. on November 6th and I'm refreshing my news app like it's a drug problem but at the moment it's looking like trump won't get to weasel his way out of this one finally um let's end with music of the day today the song i want you to check out is renegade by jay-z and eminem from the famous 2001 jay-z album the blueprint that song was inspiring to me this week basically reinforcing the idea that speaking your mind is a worthy struggle even if it means alienating certain people I feel like Eminem is one of the best examples of this idea in general, like throughout his career, his willingness to be brutally and uncomfortably honest in a way that none of his contemporaries have ever been is something I respect and admire very deeply. And this song is just like another example, albeit a smoother and more polished version to fit Jay-Z's vibe more. But yeah, I love the the confidence and the self-assuredness from both of them. It's really something I aspire to uh great throwback track classic j classic m uh and it passed me by until pretty recently for whatever reason so yeah give that a spin put a little pull pop in your step um yeah that's it episode three uh thanks for listening and uh, subscribe if you haven't tell people about it and yeah i'll be back soon